Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMAP's Middle East Books Podcast, our series of conversations with authors with new books out in the field. We're joined today by Shireen Hafez of the University of California at Riverside, Gender and Sexuality Studies. Um, she's the author of the new book, Women of the Midan, The Untold Stories of Egypt's Revolutionaries, recently published by Indiana University Press. Uh, Shireen, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. This is a pleasure. So tell us about the book, uh, Shireen. Uh, what, um, what were you trying to accomplish with the book, and what do you think the most important contributions of the book will be? Well, roughly speaking, aside from um, what I was trying to do academically, I just wanted to make sure that the contributions of women in the Bidan uh, during the Arab uprisings, and specifically in Egypt, were documented so that um, many of the activism cannot be written off as, you know, just part of the revolution. I think it was really exceptional that women were out there in Tahrir for uh, most of the time uh, that the uprisings were taking place. And I wanted so much to make sure that uh, this is a record that can be read by future young activists, um, you know, of all genders, uh, so that they can look back and know that there is a record uh, of their contributions to politics in the Middle East. So tell us about the research then. How did you, how did you get going um, when you decided to write this book? See, when I decided to write the book, uh, the revolution was in its heyday. And when I say heyday, I mean that it was at its peak. Um, you know, um, the revolutionaries felt that, you know, things can change. Uh, they had hope. Uh, they were inspired by uh, the activism that they didn't know they had. Uh, and everybody was very optimistic, including myself. And um, it was really easy to talk to women who were in the Midan, who were um, involved in all kinds of activism. They were happy to talk. They were available. There were so many of them. Uh, they introduced me to each other. Um, I went to many group meetings. It was just very um, exciting and it was very easy to access. <clears throat> people to interview and then gradually as you all as you know uh, the revolution took uh, you know a shift and uh, things didn't become so easy uh, it was very difficult to actually find um, women activists who would like to talk about their experience in the Midan many of them found it very uh, painful some were even suffering from PTSD so towards the end of the project it became rather more difficult to find uh, people who, I mean, women who would be interested in talking to me. So I realized that this, you know, sort of uh, development in the way that I access um, the, my interviewees uh, reflected, you know, like the political uh, scene in, in Egypt and uh, was more informative than not actually, which was quite interesting. Now you have a very interesting... You have a very interesting discussion of your methodology. Uh, when you talk about memory, uh, you, you use this concept of re-memory. Uh, tell, tell us, what do you mean by that? Well, I was trying to find something more than memory, you know, because when, when I was speaking to many of the women who were involved in the uprisings, who found themselves for the very first time face-to-face -face with, um, you know, state violence, with um, all kinds of, you know, experiences in Tahrir and other places in Egypt, I felt that um, th there was something there that was happening during the interview. Mm -hmm. It wasn't simply that, you know, people are sitting there reminiscing or 
um, retelling stories um, of the past. It wasn't. It wasn't that I could. I could view how their bodies actually changed, their voices changed, their, the expressions in their eyes changed, their whole demeanor changed as they were retelling these stories. And as some of them uh, always pointed out, you're making us remember what it was like. And it was almost as if they were reliving these experiences. So it wasn't simply just, you know, retelling a memory, it was remembering, mm -hmm. actually physically experiencing uh, the uh, events that took place and how they were intervening in those events. So the term rememory is actually from a book by uh, Toni Morrison. And uh, I like the term because uh, even though she talks about the horrendous and, and traumatic experiences of uh, slavery in America, uh, I, it, I felt that it was, it was very helpful for me to somehow um, you know, use the term to, ex to, de to describe the experiences of the activists because these were experiences that were not simply um, memories, they were also very visceral experiences, very corporeal experiences. And the term lent itself to that very um, intense experience of revolution, of uprising, of um, collaboration, of violence, of um, all kinds of the experiences that, that they had in, uh, in the uprising in Egypt. Yeah, and your, your accounts of those interviews are they're extremely well written and they're very, very uh, gripping uh, when you retell. Thank you. I'm glad you <laughs> think so. <laughs> when you retell those interviews, you can really feel what it was like for you and for them in that conversation. There, there was one um, uh, very striking moment, anecdote, uh, the, the woman who was reliving the uh, her revolutionary chants in one of the cafes. Remember that one? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, that, that, that was so telling of that remembering. I mean, as, as, you know, it all started out very friendly and the two of us were sitting there chatting. She was showing me pictures of her son and talking about, you know, this and that. And then when she actually started chanting, it was like everybody fell silent in the cafe and, and you know, like the, the cook and, and the waiters, <laughs> everybody lined up listening to her. It was such a mesmerizing moment. And the transformation that I was witnessing in her and also in the people was, was just incredibly, um, how can I say this? Um, it was just a very turn, it was an important turning moment in the research. And I'm glad that you mentioned that. Uh, because yeah, it, it convinced me, excuse me? No, it was, it, was a, it was a very striking moment early on. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I'm, like I said, I'm glad you pointed out because for me, that was a moment when I realized that this was not simply memory. This was, this was more than that. This was the body re-experiencing uh, what it was like to be in the middle of all of that uh, action and all of that trauma. Now, switching uh, uh, just uh, for the moment uh, from methodology towards the broader contribution of the book, uh, you make a sustained argument that it really matters that, uh, that the way people have written about the Egyptian revolution uh, has not been explicitly focused on gender. And then so you focus on gendering the revolution. Tell us why you think that's so important. What's missing from the accounts of revolutionary activism uh, when people don't adopt a, a feminist lens? What is the contribution that your gendered analysis is really making for us? Well, that's, that's an absolutely fascinating question and, and, and really leads to the reason why I wrote the book in the first place. 
um, when I started experiencing the revolution from afar, it seemed almost uh, that women were, were absent. They were just absent from the accounts. They were absent from uh, scholarly engagements. They were absent from uh, the literature. I could see pictures uh, that came up in the media. The media was uh, obsessed with this idea that, oh, you know, women are contributing for the first time in the Arab world and look at these women, they're finally becoming, you know, feminists, which, which is something that I had experienced before in my work, um, just witnessing how Western uh, talking heads basically talk about women in uh, Muslim majority countries or in the Middle East in general, as if, you know, they are mired in um, the darkness of history or medieval <laughs> times or something, and that all of a sudden they awaken. So there's always this you know, sort of formula of the awakening Arab woman or the awakening uh, Arab people or, you know, this whole conception that the Arab world is sleeping and is suddenly going to awaken to the wonders of, of Western politics and democracy. So to me, um, that seemed to contradict what I was seeing and, and what I knew about the history of, of women's contributions in the Arab world and, and in Egypt in particular. And I felt like, you know, it was really important to situate that, situate that action, important as it is, within the historical trajectory uh, of women's contributions to politics uh, in Egypt. It was very, very important for me to, to center the body um, within these contributions because um, the, the feminine body has always been victimized. Uh, in a lot of the literature and also in a lot of the uh, sort of discourses around, again, the Muslim majority societies where women's bodies are seen as uh, hidden, they're uh, circumcised, they're, uh, you know, traumatically treated by the male gaze, and so they have to cover, um, they're victims of honor killings, you know, etc. to the end. And so the female body has never really been problematized in a way that is substantial, that actually gives the body its dimensional and its conscious, you know, sort of intent in action, and specifically in political action. And so it was important to examine what, what happened to these political spaces when women's bodies intervened there. And, um, you, talk, and you talk about the, the physicality of protest and the, the, it's not just the abstract, the number of women, it's the physical experience of those women uh, within those spaces. Exactly. And how, how, do those, how does that corporeal presence affect social change and political change in particular? What does it say about uh, the uprising and, and how did it impact uh, the ways in which the uprising was um, developed and how it was also used against itself? And so, go ahead. Well, let's talk about some of the specifics then, some of the things that you found. Uh, how, how did women's presence change the, the uprising? And how did the, uh, the experience of those, of, of those uprisings change these women? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so in, in so many ways, public space is designed with a male kind of logic. It's designed for male bodies to interact, to contribute politically, to consume, to produce. And so urban planning in general is very male-centric, so male by default. These spaces are not designed for women. They are designed basically for businessmen. 
So public space has that, uh, you know, sort of male, you know, uh, consumer in mind um, behind, you know, sort of the design of space and flow and traffic and uh, the kind of, you know, sort of um, political interaction that happens in the public space. So by virtue of the fact that the public is designed as a male space, the presence of female bodies in Tahrir and also obviously of the hundreds of thousands of people who were there basically transformed that space from simply a, a space that was regulated by the state that uh, fulfills particular you know, business and financial and political uh, intent to a place of revolt. So when you even look at the pictures of Tahrir Square, you will see how the throngs of people hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people basically, um, you know, sort of smoothed over all of the traffic signals, all of the streets, all of the, uh, you know, the flow of, of, of car. I mean, you must have driven in, in Tahrir Square mm -hmm. at some point and you know how horrendous it is. But all of that was erased by the body, by, by the bodies of people who were in Tahrir. And that in and of itself was an act of rebellion to see that half of these bodies were women's bodies was also another act, I mean, sort of extended that act of rebellion to be an act of um, appropriation almost of, of, feminine, of the feminine gender, because it's challenging that the presence of female bodies in male-centric public spaces was actually challenging the patriarchal, patriarchal logic of the space. And it was basically demonstrating that they were there because of very serious and very um, visceral and, and, and intense reasons. They were there because they wanted dignity, that they, they, wanted, um, they wanted equality, they wanted, um, they wanted a future where their children can have access to resources, where they can be unafraid, and where they don't even have to, you know, sort of pander to the rich and the wealthy and the elite in order to make a living. And that's, that's really why they were there. And their intervention made a huge impact, not just on the uprising, but also on the state, on the military. That's such a male-centric, you know, sort of uh, organization, an institution that is now, you know, all-powerful in the region, in Egypt in particular, uh, where the male logic there is obviously challenged by the notion that women's bodies are out there because they don't know what to do with that. And so the first thing that, that the military did was basically attack these women. Mm -hmm. And state media was basically framing these women as fallen women, as uh, disrespectful women, as women who do not, uh, who are not worthy of protection. And hence they became disposable bodies bodies that can be attacked violently, can be dragged on, on the streets of uh, Midan, who were pulled from their hair, older women who were humiliated and slapped on their faces. Uh, so all kinds of violence happened against these women, which was rationalized by the military, uh, by the, you know, sort of discourses of patriarchy and honor, by dishonoring these bodies and basically framing them as dishonorable bodies, they then violated them. And, and, and that's how there was this push and pull where the more women were demonstrating in the Midan, the more the, the state rhetoric was trying to demean them and, and basically undermine their message. 
And you, you recount a number of, uh, of kind of well-known incidents of, uh, of sexual violence and gendered violence carried out by the military during those times. Uh, the, virgin the virginity test seems to be one of the, one of the most high-profile examples uh, in, in your book. Tell us about that and how that fit into kind of the women's experience in these, in these protests and experience with the state. So I actually focused on three vignettes in one of the chapters. One of them was the virginity test. Also another one, I, I spoke about the girl in the blue bra. Mm -hmm. um, and, and basically what, the way that I examined these again were not from a perspective of, uh, oh, see, these women are so victimized by the military. I was very clear that despite the fact that these acts of sexual assault on women's bodies took place, women retaliate, they, they responded to that. There was a women's march after the girl in the blue bra incident where uh, this protester who was, you know, semi-unconscious or unconscious was struck uh, on her bare body and, and this picture was captured by international media and became viral. Uh, almost two days after there was this all out protest uh, that basically said, you know, uh, Egypt's girls are a red line. Mm -hmm. And so every act had a reaction. It wasn't like women were these passive victims of uh, corporeal assault or sexual assault. They, they acted, they reacted to it. They organized, they, I mean, Samira Ibrahim went and took, she took these, uh, you know, the people, the, um, the officers, the doctors who were in charge of the virginity test, she took them to court. Uh, and it was a series of, you know, like uh, trials and, and her name was, you know, basically used over and over again. And that, that actually traumatized her, but she knew that she had to do this because this was part of her message. This was part of her activism. She was not a victim. She was not a, a passive victim of patriarchal systems that were trying to undermine her body. She was an actor. And the, that- The, the story very, itself, as you tell it, is just horrifying. It is a horrifying story, I mean, and, and, and the way that she tells it and she, she describes it uh, as if, you know, this was a moment when she really wanted to die. And I mean, I mean, to push a human being to the point of, you know, wishing death upon itself in order to uh, protect itself is, is kind of horrific. Uh, and, and all these people are really trying to do is to protest against injustice. The, uh, the story of the, the, the girl in the blue bra the, who was uh, attacked during the protests and uh, her, her, uh, her clothes pulled up and her stomach mm -hmm. stomped, um, it's a good example of what you were talking about, about the attack on honor, how the state media then tried to frame it around how no, no real woman would wear clothes like that, would be wearing a, a blue uh, underwear like that. It, it fits into that. It's a very nice example of what you were talking about. These gender discourses used um, to discredit or to undermine uh, their participation. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, it's the way that violence is talked about is almost always uh, re-victimizing of the victim. And, uh, and I understand why people do that you know, that they, they, they see these moments of injustice and they can't help themselves. You know, they want to talk about how badly this woman in the blue bra was treated, uh, how inert her body was and how uh, pale and, and, you know, helpless she was under the boots of the military at that moment. 
so I understand why some, you know, some people may describe it as such, but at the same time, even that inert body became reconfigured in feminist thought almost immediately. So some of the signs that uh, were carried in, in the march, you know, uh, with the red line, Egypt, Egypt's girls mm -hmm. uh, are a red line. Um, in that moment, they reconfigured the, the fallen figure of this young woman into an Indra, leaping into the air. And basically, you know, with this karate move, you know, the way that the ninjas used to do, uh, was hitting back at the at these soldiers who were so you know cowardly and and hitting her body when she was unconscious so i think this to me you know sort of was very emblematic of the kind of violence that was perpetrated against women and and protesters in the mid but specifically against women uh, because these women resisted being re-victimized deliberately this was an intentional moment and it was an intentional rewriting of history uh, by these women who were in the Midan. And the same thing with Samir Ibrahim. Uh, the same thing with uh, the naked pictures of Alia, who basically posed almost naked, except for red shoes and a, and a red flower in her hair. I mean, she was basically saying, I am returning the gaze. And this is how we're going to fight this. You know, that we're not, you know, victims. We're not passive victims the way that we have been written uh, traditionally. And we are restructuring this and, and, and returning the gaze back. And that to me was, was really uh, quite emblematic also of, of the fight of women uh, in the media. Yeah. Let me, um, I want to ask you uh, two different questions uh, about the title of your books. I think it gets to some of the issues that people I'm sure will think about when they read it. Uh, so the, the title of the book is Women of the Midan. Let me start with women. Um, so the, the women that you interview uh, and, and that you relate their experiences, uh, they, they come from a wide range of class backgrounds um, and, um, and age and a number of other things which, which, which kind of differentiate them. How much of the experience of these women do you see as, as general, as generic to being women and how much of it is mediated by these class differences or experiences with prior activism, or all the other things which might lead to kind of a different uh, type of experience with protest? That's also a great question. Um, so yes, the title says women, and really um, it's, 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 not intent, it's not intended to homogenize the experiences of women because intentionally, of course, of course. My, yeah, my interviews were, as you say, you know, directed at a very wide range. I mean, there were far more uh, women I interviewed than the ones that I included, than the cases I included in the book. And simply because I wanted to understand what the experience of being in Tahrir, of being in the uprising was like to every woman who was out there. Uh, and I was not satisfied with the ways that some people were writing about particular groups and not others and, um, you know, including some, some women and not others. So it was really, really important for me from the very beginning uh, that the pool of the interviewees would be drawn from across the board. Mm -hmm. Also because in Tahrir, the, the constitution of the protesters, you know, was like cross-class, cross-religion, uh, cross... You know, um, age, uh, cross gender, um, the presence also of LGBT groups was was quite interesting, and I wish I had 
you know, more time to, to do those kind of interviews. Uh, but it was important for me to problematize the idea that uh, when we say women, we're not simply talking about um, working class women or women in rural areas as traditionally has been in um, scholarship on gender in the Middle East. And then comparing these women, these rural, you know, traditional women to women in the West, for example, or using rubrics from, you know, Western discourses to and applying them to women who are basically uh, working in the fields, for example. So it was important to show uh, that there's a very wide cross range of women who come from very different classes, very different educational backgrounds, who had very similar but different experiences and uh, who had um, various, you know, motivations, even though they were all motivated, obviously, by the idea of injustice and, and, and redressing the issues of, of uh, police brutality, of, um, you know, sort of uh, inequality in society and so on. So even, even the women that I spoke with who came from a well-to-do background and they didn't have issues of, um, you know, sort of poverty and didn't have issues of having to struggle for, uh, to make ends meet. Even those women were, were aware very starkly of what it was like to struggle to put food on the table. And that to me was quite inspirational because Growing up in Egypt, you know, it's easy to find yourself uh, in a class bubble, isolated from other uh, groups in society, isolated from the needs and, and the uh, challenges that face, uh, the, you know, the growing population. And it's very easy for people uh, with comfortable lives to just ignore others in a country and a metropolis like Cairo in particular, you know, which is far, you know, and, and, and extending. And now, of course, with the growing gated community, it's even more easy to isolate yourself behind those walls. And so it was very inspirational to me to see that many of these women who are well-to-do were aware and were working hand in hand with all different classes and with all different people and with the people who were struggling and how, you know, one of the women basically told me, I don't want to ask for financial help. I don't want to go to the state to ask for, um, you know, um, or, you know, the, there's this subsidy for, for winter that uh, the government gives people, which is like nothing. It's, it's almost $10 now. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost nothing, but yet these people go and travel and take so much transportation and stand in line for days in order to get that $10, right? So the extremes that I saw amongst people were bridged by the concern for the country and the future of this country and the future of the next generation. And that to me was also quite an inspirational message uh, that the revolutionaries basically imparted to me during the research. So I don't know if that answers yeah. your No, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Class. I was also going to ask about the Midan part just in terms of protests outside the square and, and, and both temporally and, um, and physically. But we're just about out of time. And I wanted to uh, kind of ask one last question right at the end, just very, sure. very, very quickly. Um, because I, I find, uh, you know, from, from the vantage point of, uh, of knowing how things end up, the very last line of your book is, is, is haunting. Um, you're interviewing uh, uh, a woman, Amal, and you ask, but what if Al-Sisi became like everyone else? 
and we will not stand for it, came the swift reply. We will go to the streets again and demand his resignation. And of course, we all know how that turned out. Yes. But I'm, but I'm curious if you've had a chance to, you know, reconnect with any of these women and if, if how they kind of reflect on, you know, the, on their activism in light of this trajectory. I did reconnect with many of the women and, um, and it's, and it's also, the reactions are very varied. I mean, um, some of them basically said, well, we're going to have to give him a chance and we'll just have to put our heads down and, and work hard and to get ourselves out of this, uh, financial straits out of these financial straits and then other women were depressed and many many of them like I said you know were suffering from all kinds of ailments physical mental uh, they couldn't reconcile what was happening um, to civil society the, the the nascent civil society that was emerging because of the uprisings and what was happening in terms of the silencing of activism and you know the sort of um, you know sort of state washing of of the revolution mm -hmm. uh, so it was a very mixed kind of follow-up um, but as you can imagine it was a very demoralizing one well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I want to thank Shireen Hafez of the University of California, Riverside, uh, author of the book, Women of the Midan, The Untold Stories of Egypt's Revolutionaries. Uh, thank you for joining us and for this great conversation. Thank you so much, Mark. It's always a pleasure.